Minnesota Talk is Jericho is the plot of thunder and rock and roll, and cabins are going quickly for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, the Four Leaf Clover. We are setting sail March 14th to the 18th from Miami to Nassau, and we've got a heavy-hitting lineup of talent, maybe our best lineup ever. And if you don't want FOMO, which everybody always has, whenever we come back from Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea, then book your cabin now at Chris Jericho Cruise. That's ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Enjoy the vacation of a lifetime with All Elite Wrestling. Guest of honor, Mark Henry. Guest cruise director, Mickey James, is also going to be performing live with her band. Guest host, Gallows and Anderson. Rocky Romero is going to join them for Talk and Shop, and who knows what other wacky stuff they're going to do. Director of Laughs, Brad Williams. Mick Foley is going to be there. King Haku, Nick Aldis, Brutus Beefcake, Mike Rotunda. Impact World Champion Moose, Jordan Grace is going to be there, uh, Swoggle, Dan Lambert, who has an amazing collection of world title belts from around the world, all the territories. He's bringing a selection of those on the ship for you guys to look at, to take pictures with, and he's going to tell stories about all of them. Uh, Matt Cardona and Brian Myers are doing a live version of Wrestling Figures podcast. Shaw Guerrero and the Vaudettes will be there, Fozzie, Quiet Riot, Royal Bliss, Raven, the band, New Wave of British Heavy Metal Pioneers, Pris, the uh, world world's greatest female uh, kiss cover band gutter candy featuring frank gazarian dave spivak project quarantine jeff die kate quigley keeping you laughing dave schrader is going to be there keeping you scared the list is endless the talent is endless and the fun is endless come join us book your cabin now at chris jericho cruise.com and don't you dare miss it it's a lot of fun it's a great time and speaking of which we're having a great time in europe on the fozzy save the world tour uh, had, a, had a killer show at the Legendary Cavern Club in Liverpool a few nights ago. Go listen to the Cavern Club episode from last Friday. So many amazing stories about the club and the birth of the Beatles, all the other stuff that happened at this crazy place. It was such a great show. And speaking of amazing stories, we're taking a deep dive into the pretty dark story of WWE history, the steroid trials from the early 90s. Dark Side of the Ring covered it in the new season with WWE lawyer Jerry McDivitt, who represented Vince McMahon in the WWE during that trial. So today I got two guys who covered the trial from a media perspective. I'm talking about Dave Meltzer from the New Wrestling Observer Newsletter, uh, multiple guests here on Talk is Jericho. And for the first time, Wade Keller makes his debut, the editor of Pro Wrestling Torch, long-term wrestling newsletter. Both were in the courtroom for the trial, and Wade was there to see the verdict read. Dave and Wade remember the trial, the witnesses, the crazy stories in the courtroom, Hulk Hogan's involvement, and the aftermath. They share their thoughts and opinions about what happened then versus how it's remembered today and what a guilty verdict may have meant for the WWF at the time. They break down Hogan's controversial appearance on the Arsenio Hall show, where he admitted to doing steroids only three times, and how that impacted the WWE and Vince personally. It's an incredible story, and it's starting now on Talk is Jericho. So this this season of Dark Side of the Ring, there was a lot of really interesting topics, and most of them I know things about. But the one that really uh, got me, because I didn't really know much about it, was was the the WWF steroid trials from the early '90s, and, and Dave Meltzer, who has been on been on Talk is Jericho many times, and the debuting Wade Keller uh, are here to discuss this because both you guys were on on that documentary. And how did you feel, first of all? Did they do a good job explaining kind of the insanity of this whole time frame, Wade? I, I thought they did a good job. Um, I think it's a it's a complicated story. I think with Jerry McDevitt being a big part of it, it became a lot about Jerry McDevitt. I think it would have been a different documentary had he said no, not necessarily in the angle they took, but in terms of the focus of the story. But yeah, I think it's a complicated story. And the goal of the documentary makers is is to entertain and inform and not get too bogged down in the legal-esque. So I took that into account. This wasn't meant for a legal class. It isn't a book. It's So I think there are some things that were amplified that maybe were more entertaining, but not super important. But overall, I thought if you watch that, you got a pretty good idea of what was at stake and why Vince McMahon ultimately was found not guilty. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I thought... Um... Like there's there's certain technical aspects and and certainly like when you look at something like this, you can always say, well, I would have done this. I would tweak this. I mean, overall, I thought it was a really good show. Um, You know, there were certain things like Wade said with um, it became it became very much a Jerry McDivitt show. And in that sense, it was there were certain aspects like the trial was was not. I mean, I think that there's a very there are a few key aspects of the trial that were not gotten into that actually probably played the difference between 
you know, guilty and not guilty that weren't really talked about because they were very, I mean, they, they would have been hard to discuss, but not impossible. And while I'm sure it was Jerry McDivitt's greatest legal win, probably of his entire career, and he was not nearly as confident when this trial was over as he kind of acted on the show. Like I just <laughs> kicked their ass and everything because, because I remember and Wade actually knows better than me because he was there longer. But I remember when I was leaving on the last day of the trial um, and I did not wait for the verdict because I, because any, and I saw him, I go, Hey, you know, I'm taking off going back home. And he goes, aren't you going to wait for the verdict? I go, I, I already know what the verdict's going to be. And he was like smoking and he was nervous <laughs> as hell. I mean, he was so nervous. And I go like, you know, Vince is going to get acquitted. And he just goes, really, really think so? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because he, I think he was so close that he didn't see it. But now with the benefit of hindsight, now it's like, oh, man, we kicked their ass. And, and, and they kind of did in the sense that the prosecution had a very weak case. But I'm just saying like he came off very confident and, um, and Wade could actually discuss this better than me. But. He was so nervous when that trial was over about his strategy and everything. During ju jury deliberations, Laura Brevetti just yelled out the F word at one point um, <laughs> when she heard that the jury wanted more testimony to be read back in the specific testimony that it was. There was some, I think some, still some question about how the jury was going to feel. Because I think uh, Sean O'Shea in closing arguments, he was like very stoic throughout the whole trial. And then closing arguments and suddenly he cut this wrestling promo. And it was dramatic and full of just bravado and emotion. And he was trying to get the jury, I think, to make a decision on the emotions of this big company creating this financial incentive for wrestlers to keep up with each other so they could all look a certain way so that this corporate entity could make money off of them risking their health. And that was if he had the law on his side, I think he probably would have been a little calmer and just said, hey, it's cut and dry. Mm -hmm. Here's what happened. Here's where it was sold. It's in our jurisdiction. Here's the letter of the law, judge's instructions to the jury. He wanted to get the jury to make ultimately a, an emotional decision. And I think in the end, he gave them a couple things to work with that if they wanted to find Vince guilty, and that was just their determination, I think the jury could have justified, or at least he was giving them that. But ultimately, I mean, you know, they, they asked for some readback and, you know, I don't think people looked at the prosecution's case and thought, what was the jury thinking ultimately? Yeah, I think um, I think that that he didn't have the the tie-in for a conspiracy, which was the key thing. So what he was looking for was to get people to just go, this guy here, Vince McMahon, is a really bad guy, and we need to teach him a lesson. And that was like the basic focus of it is like this guy made all this money off of the back of these guys and just went in there and goes like. You know, they're supposed to be prescribed for medical reasons. And, and none of these guys, like, it's kind of like these guys are taking this stuff for medical reasons, but they never get healthy. Why do they never get healthy? And it was, it was a very, I mean, I, I remember um, Stephanie being there, you know, and being so upset watching this, which is probably why years later in 2001, when they did the 9-11 thing and she compared it to, you know, the 9-11 to what they did, you know, the government did to her father. Yeah. And because I, I, I could see it in her. I think she was 18 years old or 17 at the time. And you could just see, like, this guy is making her father look like the worst piece of shit in the universe. And and I think that's what O'Shea's idea was, is, like, we don't have the technical thing to convict him. So let's just make him look like the worst guy. And they'll convict him just because this guy's a bad guy. And it didn't work. But that was what he was working for. One of O'Shea's closing lines was, we didn't say be like Hulk Hogan, take his vitamins all the while they were pumping him up with steroids. They're big, rich, powerful. They're corporate drug dealers. Just because they're rich doesn't give them a free pass. That's the kind of pitch he was making to the jury at the end. So let's just kind of back up a bit. And if, if also, I want to say, we're talking about McDevitt. I'm actually very surprised that they got him on camera to discuss this because uh, obviously would, I was assuming he'd have to get permission or at least Vince's blessing to be involved. Um, he couldn't just show up on his own. Yeah, but I think that they are trying to publicize this time period because they're doing their own television series right. about this time period, which is going to be. So I think that the narrative is, is you know, Vince was this oppressed guy and we killed them in court. Right. And, you know, I think that they wanted that thing rather than like a show, which, which would be if it's me and Phil Mushnick and Wade, they're not. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, even though, I, you know, I would say at the end that the verdict was the right verdict. The fact is, is that um, the company would not have looked like this underdog, you know, like McDivitt gotcha, gave it a, diff right. a different time, a different, a very, very different frame of the show of what it would be with if he was not there. So let's back up a bit um, as far as how this all took place. 
and almost talk about it for people who, who haven't seen the show and don't know much about it. How did it get to this point in the first place? Uh, obviously, uh, more of a nutshell version, Wade. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the short thing is, is Dr. George Sahorian assigned by the Athletic Commission, was backstage at WWE events for years, and he was handing out steroids to wrestlers who would get line uh, for them, along with other drugs, and he landed on the radar of government officials. It was a time when steroids had become, the classification legally had changed in terms of how legal it was for a doctor to give steroids to wrestlers. And so the government was looking to, I mean, the argument was the government was looking for someone to make an example out of. And they went after Vince McMahon. They, the idea was he distributed steroids to Hulk Hogan directly. That was a charge. And that he also was um, conspiring to distribute steroids within the company. The prosecution had this big memo internally that they blew up in closing arguments that showed that they were aware of Dr. Zahorian and the government looking into him. That's what roughly a 30 second nutshell, Dave, what what granular nuance do you add to that? So, I mean, the, the, the thing is, yeah, the, the law changed and Zahorian was actually put on trial and it was like almost a test case. And they had him dead to rights and he was convicted. Um, he was distributing steroids to a number of WWE wrestlers and also to um, a strength coach, which is what, what happened was that they got a, a Bill Dunn, who was a, a, a good friend of a wrestler named Steve Muslin or Steve Travis, as he was known in WWE. Um, Steve Travis put him in touch with Zahorian. And he, I believe he was a track coach of like high school kids who was getting steroids for his team. Right. So, um, and, and Zahorian, they had like, they wired Dunn to go to Zahorian and um, you know, Zahorian just acted like a drug doctor. It's like, you know, give me the cash. I'll give you the drugs. You know, I mean, they have that on tape. And so then they um, started investigating Zahorian and found the connection to all the wrestlers. And um, so the Zahorian trial goes on. Zahorian's convicted. And then Phil Mushnick is writing about it and um, in, the, in the New York papers and everything. And Vince starts steroid testing. Yes, yes. Vince starts steroid testing. And, you know, Mushnick's writing more and more stuff. And then the uh, Eastern District, uh, just the Justice Department in the Eastern District, looked into it and was sort of like, let's let's go after Vince. And it was not just on those charges, but the other charges couldn't stick. So it ended up being just on the steroid charges. And, uh, you know, there was there were certain things that happened. And um, the key one, you know, the difference in the long run, the difference between the guilty and the not guilty is the fact that a government uh, official tipped off Linda McMahon and told her that, uh, you know, you, the Sahorian guy's hot, we're investigating him. And so they cut all ties with Zahorian if, because if that had not happened, they would not have cut ties with Zahorian. And there was enough that happened where I, I'm pretty sure that, that uh, you know, Vince couldn't it, it, Vince would have been found guilty because I guess the, the key thing in the case, the key thing in the case is that there was a woman named Anita Scales who was in charge of booking doctors for the for the live shows. Um, Zahorian was assigned by the Pennsylvania State Athletic by the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission. And then the commission changed its bylaws and said, okay, we're not going to be assigning the doctors anymore. You know, you, you know, wrestling and boxing, whatever, you, you pick your own doctor at ringside. We're not going to send a doctor. So when they would go to uh, eastern, western Pennsylvania, the Allentown area, Hershey area, um, Zahorian had been the doctor going back to the 70s, I think, maybe even earlier, probably, probably the 70s. And then... Um, Anita Scales knew about Zahorian. Zahorian was not a guy that people didn't know about. In wrestling, everybody knew, oh, yeah, go to WWE. Um, I mean, everybody would go to WWE. They'd get 20 pounds bigger, you know, and and more muscular. And so you go to WWE, go to Zahorian, he hooks you up, and you get, you know, a great body because, you know, from Bruno San Martino to Superstar Graham and and everyone in between, WWE had always been built on these, you know, 260-pound, big, strong-looking dudes. And so um, that's what they wanted out of their main eventers. So um, Scales knew that Zahorian was a bad guy and was a dealer and wanted to cut all ties with him. So she basically called a, you know, got her own doctor for that show. And then Patterson and Jay Strongbow, you know, called her up and was just like, you, you got to book Zahorian. You got to book Zahorian, you know, for, for when, when we go in those cities. And she said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then, she got the word from actually she went to Linda McMahon and went to Linda and goes like, these guys are harassing me. They want me to book Zahorian. I don't want to book Zahorian. And Linda goes, do what Pat says. So she told by Linda, 
you know, she books Zahorian for this for the next date in Hershey. And they all know, and there's no way in a trial that you could say Vince didn't have knowledge because Vince was one of the guys who was a client of Zahorian. Vince would be on the days of they would go there, Vince would get his stuff from Zahorian too. So Vince cannot say, I didn't know. So it would be Vince hiring a guy who he fully knows is distributing steroids and downers and other things to pro wrestlers. And and some of the downers were also controlled substances. It wasn't just the steroids that, that, that the uh, Zahorian trial was built on. And so um, if he had actually been hired and worked a show, I think there's a really good chance that Vince would have been found guilty of a conspiracy. But before the show, Linda gets the tip off and Linda calls up Anita Scales and goes, get rid of Zahorian. Um, we got to cut all ties with Zahorian. So Zahorian actually never worked at even that very first show. Jeez. And that was the difference. One trial note, too, when the jury wasn't present, uh, a lot of the focus between the prosecution and defense was on the wording of the judge's instructions to the jury. And the prosecutor, Sean O'Shea, cited cases where a defendant did not need to know all the details of the conspiracy as long as he knew of its existence and he knowingly joined and participated in it. And the judge was real combative. He said, I thought you would have a stronger case about uh, earlier. I'd said you should have had a stronger case. You told me you would about uh, on the two distribution counts. And then he ended up throwing uh, them out. But he's, the judge said mere knowledge of a conspiracy is insufficient for a conviction. You can know a criminal without being one. And the judge was away from the jury say, saying he was going to tell in jury instructions, he was going to say, beyond, prove beyond a reasonable doubt so often that the jury would be sick of hearing it. And so part of why there was confidence the jury would come back not guilty as courtroom observers were seeing the judge's attitude towards this case and what his instructions to the jury were going to be. And he was really going to emphasize the aspects where the judge felt the prosecution came up short. Just kind of a little bit of a segue talking about the physiques and how important, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, Dave, everybody would go there and gain 20 pounds, even like Harley Race and JYD, see the pictures of them, there's the shoulders and the traps. And But as, as a kid, that was part of the appeal. Obviously, in the 80s, we didn't know now what we know, know then what we know now. But um, I will tell you to this day, that was still one of the reasons why I got so much into wrestling. One was because of the connection of Hulk Hogan and the athleticism of Steamboat and, and, and Savage. But just the fact that all these guys were so fucking huge. Do you think at the time, obviously, once again, this is the eighties and wrestling is first breaking in. Would they have gotten as big as they did, meaning the WWF without those, those, those big muscled up bodies in your opinions? Well, so the thing is, is that like, and I think like now, because so much of this is built on the brand, whether it's AEW yes. or WWE, it's a brand business. Back then right. in the 80s, it was a superstar business. And I, it's 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 hard for people who were not around then for me to explain yeah. how big Hulk Hogan was. Because I mean, it's I forget about the steroids, okay? You take Hulk Hogan out of the picture, and they would not have succeeded going national if they would have had whether it was a uh, Carrie Von Erich or Snuka or somebody else, they would, they, it was not enough of a drawing thing where they would have, pro I don't think they would have succeeded. Certainly you take Hogan out of the first WrestleMania, you take Mr. T out of the first WrestleMania and even Piper out of the first WrestleMania, any one of the three, I think it doesn't work. And Vince gambled the whole thing on that first WrestleMania. Right. And because of that, so as I say, like if Hulk Hogan, if there were, if Hulk Hogan never existed, I think Vince would have tried this and I think he would have come up short and that's the difference. So yeah. And Hulk Hogan, that, that's, that's what the Hulk Hogan appeal was and not, you know, and then you also had Orndorff and Randy Savage and, you know, even Piper went from being like a kind of a skinny guy, <laughs> yeah. you know, to being like a, you know, a 230 yeah. pound guy, you know, like all of those guys. And, you know, Piper was one of the guys who was actually involved in the Zahorian trial. Um, and, you know, he was just talking about like, I mean, and granted, you know, he's he's from a different school, but he's going like, you know, how do I compete with these giant monsters unless I'm, you know, and he didn't, he's, he, he acted like because he was in a fight with them. But, you know, but it was the right. thing where a lot of the guys that were just normal physique guys that were very good in their territory, they would go up there and yeah, they would transform their physiques to for the, because that's, that's what the business was in the 80s. And, and, and it trickled down to the other promotions too. I mean, it went from. You know, Wade would know, like, when when, I, when we were we, we were both actually AWA territories, um, both me and Wade, for certain, Wade grew up on it, and, I, and the AWA came so to San I. Francisco. Right, I Winnipeg. grew up on it, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 
I grew up on like, like not grew up, but, but I saw, you know, Greg Gagne, just as an example of a 190 pound guy. And, and he was a good worker and he was pushed. And I, we had no problems with Greg Gagne being a baby face, except in certain circumstances when he went against a cool heel. But for the most part, he was acceptable at that size fighting Jerry Blackwell or John Studd or these monster guys, because that's just how you were grown up. Oh, this is how it was. Mm-hmm. But once the big steroid thing came, I remember like even people in the core AWA cities and certainly out here, they started like, ha, Greg Gagne, look at all these guys in WWF. And it was like his stock just plummeted. I remember Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, the High Flyers, were the number one tag team in the AWA. Yeah. And for years. War- for years. And when the when the Road Warriors came in, they brought one team in after another, the fabulous ones. And I remember my perception as a teenager was like, none of these guys are credible anymore. Who, yeah. who, I mean, they put, you know, Crusher and Baron Von Raschke, who looked 70 then, uh, both of them, they, <laughs> you know, they, and they put them against them and they were like, it was hard. Like Baron Von Raschke had credibility with a claw and he would no sell. And there, you know, it was just, it, but all of a sudden when you put a, a ro- the, these road warrior types and same with Hulk Hogan on your screen, suddenly it just changes the perception of wrestlers across the board. They had Jesse Ventura around that time too, but you know, when he was, Hulk Hogan asking his physique, but he wasn't. It was it, it, he was the exception to the rule. Where with WWF at that time, it was the rule, and you they wanted the whole roster to leap off the screen. You also had to look at what pop culture was doing. Look at action movies. Like that's when Arnold and Stallone were at their peaks, and they were jacked up. So you would see Hogan and 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 Savage and Orndorff and those guys go. Those guys look like the action heroes that we're watching. Whereas the Greg Gagne's and the Bruce Hart's and the, those type of guys, you'd be like, those guys just like look like drunks in the bar that you get in a fight with on a Friday night, you know? And that kind of, the perception is reality. And you learn that even as a fan back in those days. You know what, when you, when Wade brought up Crusher, it's like for decades, Crusher was the guy. I mean, he was like, like when it came to the big blow off and the villain. And I mean, and it could be with superstar Graham and it could be with Jesse because he, he drew money with both those guys. And it was okay, even though he was older and and everything like that. But when I remember the same thing when we saw the Crusher and Baron Von Raschke against the Road Warriors, and there was like 1,500 people there, the people just didn't buy the match anymore. And the Baron to this day is kind of a cultural icon, and Crusher, Crusher to the, it's, is, is as well. But I can remember when the Road Warriors showed up against them, it was like all the, the younger yeah. fans. I mean, the younger fans just didn't buy it at all anymore. You couldn't buy it because look at them. I mean, we, we just had Baron at the pay-per-view last week. And he's 81 and he still looks good because like you said, Wade, he looked like he was 81 when he was 41. (laughs) He looked exactly the same. I was like, you look great, man. He's like, yeah, you've you've never changed. It's like actors like Ed Asner when you're a kid, you think he's 70 and then he's like still 70 when you're 50. It's just crazy. J.J. Dillon was another one. When I was a kid, J.J. looked old and now I see him. It's like, you haven't aged in 40 years. (laughs) Exactly the same. Wilfred Brimley in The Thing was like 36 years old old he looked exactly the same when he was selling oatmeal in his 70s so you can see the difference but but i guess it was one of the yeah it was one of the (laughs) contentions for the trial was that uh were they accusing vince of suggesting that the guys get on steroids when they came to wwe they tried the the week that was a weak part of the case is they put kevin walkout's nails up there and walkout said oh yeah vince told me to take steroids they couldn't get people to say that directly because everybody still wanted a job in this business in case it's was found not guilty and by the way vince was not dumb enough to do that he didn't right. need he to didn't do have that. to do it that's, that's the whole thing <laughs> the financial incentive to keep up with your peers to get a push was very apparent yeah i mean chris you know you're a wrestler i mean you came you came a couple of years yeah. later but it was still part of the business but Okay, you come up in the ninth. Let's say you're coming. WWE signs you in 1985, and you are not that big, but you're a great wrestler. And you go up there. I mean, you're going to figure it out in five seconds, right? About what it takes. He just, Vince doesn't have to go. Hey, Chris. You know, yeah. And he, he may say, he may say, hey, Chris, put on 15 pounds. He may say that because he probably did say that to some people. But does he need to tell you, hey, Chris, go to Doctor Sahorian directly? He doesn't need to say that. You're going right. to find it out from the boys. And and when they put Wackels on the stand, he wore a, a prison outfit. And it really hurt the credibility. I, I think it suggested to the jury some people are out to get him. And then they <laughs> it was. Yeah, I mean, I remember being interviewed <laughs> out front of the courtroom by the media. And they're like, what is this Kevin Wackels character? What do you say? What do you think of his testimony? And I think they included a clip in uh, in the documentary of me saying, you know, 
you can't see if he has any muscles. He's wearing this gigantic loose orange right. suit. There's no way Vince McMahon would tell him to get on steroids. And I think that worked into the jury's head of, gee, are some people out to get him? You know, but but yeah, I mean, you don't have to tell somebody to get on steroids no. when you want to keep up with your peers. And Vince knew it. He wasn't dumb enough. It was the culture of the time. I mean, I started in 1990 and, and most of the guys were dabbling because you got to get as big as you can because you would see. I, I remember meeting Davy and Dynamite in about 86, 87. They could barely button their shirts. And I was taller than Dynamite and almost as tall as Davy. And I was like, holy shit, these guys are like 50 pounds heavier than me. I got to get big. Because uh, once again, that was the the attitude and the culture of what was going on. Uh, funny, quick story about Jake Roberts. He said that he got he, he did uh, talk as Jericho last year and said that he got hurt and got on the gas. So when he came back, he was looking all big. And Vince is like, "What are you doing? You're a snake. Snakes don't <laughs> yes. have big traps. And get off the gas." So that actually worked. If, if Jake could have it could have been on the stand and say, "No, Vince told me not to do steroids." <laughs> yeah. You know. So how do we finally lead to this big trial then? Um, where the FBI was involved and all the, the things that we were talking about at the beginning. I mean, they just uh, they did an investigation on Vince and interviewed a zillion people. And, you know, that that was the the basic charges were were a distribution charge. Or actually, there were two distribution charges, one of which the, the problem was another. The, another problem was is that the crimes had to be in the eastern district of New York. So basically Long Island. So somehow with the distribution to Hulk Hogan. Okay, what happened is, is that Zahorian would send FedEx packages to Vince with steroids and whatever else, probably just steroids when it came to Vince. And Hulk Hogan, you know, he would give stuff to Hogan. They would distribute it within, but he would do it at Vince's office in Stanford, Connecticut. That's not good enough for this case. They had to find a way to tie it into Long Island. And the problem is, is that they couldn't. They attempted to tie it in with the idea that, Vince's limo driver, Jim Stewart, had delivered a package of steroids from Stanford to the Nassau Coliseum, which is in Long Island, and gave it to Hogan. The problem was, and this is like just so ridiculous, is that the package came six days after the show in Long Island that Hulk Hogan was on. So, you know, how did, how did this even get to trial? When when this came out, it's kind of like, I'm going like, how does this even get to trial and, and, and become a, a charge? Because it is absolutely impossible. Even if even if this actually happened, you know, it was like it couldn't have happened with that time frame. The, the judge was upset with Sean O'Shea over that. I mean, he told him when the jury wasn't present, I expected you gave the impression you would present be presenting a much stronger case on the two distribution counts. So, you know, and then he ended up dropping them and the case got, you know, a lot weaker at that point. And it's just it. How, I mean, how do you get the dates that wrong when you're putting a case together if that's what those counts act absolutely needed to, to sustain themselves. Right. Now, I remember there was one point in the trial um, when they threw out because of um, there was another thing where they did, in fact, have evidence through, um, oh, God, this, the secretary, Emily Feinberg. You know, she kind of testified that Hogan was there and they did in the office distribute steroids. Now, it wasn't as if Vince was the drug dealer and going here, pay me for the steroids. It was he sent the steroids to the office and gave Hogan the steroids. So they were they were wanting that to be a distribution charge, but they could not do it. And I remember, like the judge said, like if the department in Connecticut wants to go after him for that, they can go after him. So it could be there. But the Connecticut, you know, obviously Vince is located in Connecticut and he's got all kinds of friends and nobody there wanted to go after him for that. But I remember um, Tony Valente, who was like Sean O'Shea's sidekick, just like got so excited. Oh, yeah. Now, maybe this time we, we can get him. But it was, you know, even then it was just kind of like, you know, you think that the Connecticut department's going to go after Vince, one of the, you know, has, um, you know, so, so much financial ties to that region. That wasn't going to happen. And it was still weak. You know, the case would still have been weak. We kind of touched on it before, but how serious was this at the time for Vince in the WB? I mean, you can now, once again, making kind of jokes and like, oh, we kicked their ass. But you mentioned that McDivitt was worried. And for it to actually get to trial, I mean, that's a big deal because then all bets are off, right? You yeah. never know what could happen. Depending. They were legitimately worried. I mean, how, however they felt about the case day to day before. And Jerry McDevitt, you know, when the documentary said we were celebrating when the indictment came through because we can finally prove our innocence. And yeah, I, I don't know I about that. I never got a sense. No, I never got a sense. I was happy to be there. Uh, Shane and Stephanie were stressed out. It was a scare. Vince was preparing, you know, hiring Jerry Jarrett to run, you know, fill in for him to a degree. Uh, if he went to prison because he trusted Jerry, be careful with money. And, you know, he had run a company before. 
you know, I, I think Finn surrounds himself with people who he likes to have around him, but he doesn't necessarily trust them to run the company if something happens to him. <laughs> so some of that was going on. So they were preparing for the worst. I, I mean, I, I saw Vince McMahon for, you know, three weeks at his most vulnerable and and scared. And, you know, he's, he was a different person the second the not guilty verdict was read. I mean, the old, the old Vince came back with all the bravado and confidence bravado, yeah. in front of the microphone once he was found not guilty but that was a he was a completely different person sitting in that courtroom for three weeks but we should bring out that that they did offer vince plea bargain deals yes. i mean i don't i don't think that they were necessarily mm. wanting to go to trial either i think that they wanted him you know just to show like okay we worked this hard and we got him on this thing and it's like they probably offered him something where you don't have to go to jail but maybe you have to pay a fine or something and vince and mcdivitt were confident enough to turn down those you maybe maybe it wasn't maybe maybe they did say okay you have to go for six months i don't know but they offered him a they did offer vince a plea bargain deal and vince and mcdivitt and you know they did turn it down and and take their luck you know and and risk their everything at trial so um you know they were confident to that degree what kind of a sentence was he facing if he was convicted? God, well, how, I don't remember how long it was. It was it was some big fines. At first, they were talking about confiscation of the entire Titan Towers, which would have been gigantic. But Jeez. at the very end, you know, because they were the idea that that building was used for drug dealing. Um, but mm. that later, that was thrown out. But it, I think the fines would have, were about a half a million dollars. And I don't remember how long the prison sentence would have been. But it was significant. I mean, it was significant enough time frame. I don't know if you remember the exact... Uh, time frame, Wade. No, I was. Uh, I mean, it was years, but not. I don't think it was up. I don't think it was like more than six years. Gotcha. Yeah. So it wasn't like a thirty-year. No, yeah, 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 yeah. But still, I mean, still, even if it's five years in prison yeah. for Vince McMahon, oh, yeah. or or three or three years, I mean, that's still significant. And in a business that's not that was not nearly as stable as it is now, where you know, in three years, you know, the whole thing could turn around. I mean, it could be with no Vince there or, or the, sti- and all the other thing is, is the stigma of the guilty verdict. Cause if you remember back then it was also, um, while raw did exist, the key television was the syndicated television that went in the markets where you built your house shows. Cause it was a house show and pay-per-view business. So there would be TV stations who would, you know, were, were either being paid by Vince or, you know, had barter deals with Vince who might go, you know what? I don't know if we want to be in business with this guy because KTVU in San Francisco, which was one of the strongest independent stations that they had in there that they had, they did cancel over the indictment. They did cancel the show and Vince had to scramble and get other television here. And you know how that goes. That could be a domino effect with San Francisco. Sure. San Francisco goes like this. And then all of a sudden it's like, there's a guilty verdict. I could see a lot of stations just going like, of course. you know, like we don't, you know, they were just found guilty of being a, you know, a drug sport and it's not like it's the Olympics or anything. It's like they're not that significant to us. And they would have to like, re, you know, they, they would be hurt bad in their syndicated department. So it had been it had been devastating had, had he found been found guilty, I think. Yeah, there, there are a lot of unknowns. I just looked up my cover story in the prosecution started the week before the trial. It said um, Vince faces up to 11 years in prison and one point five million in fines, counting wow. all mm-hmm. three counts. I think once the two counts were dropped during the trial, that then it was five hundred. Yeah, yeah, then it was five hundred thousand. Yeah. So eleven years is scary if you're Vince McMahon. Granted, that would be max. Yeah. Yeah. Are you? Are so? Were you at, like in the in the court the whole trial? Were you a, tr- a court reporter, or what was your? Yeah, I, I was. I was doing the personal court newsletter, but I was there from jury selection through closing arguments at the trial for all three weeks. I flew back in the middle and put out a twenty-four page double issue covering everything <laughs> for the first two weeks, and then flew right back after you know working all weekend uh because i mean i didn't have a laptop then it was a weird you know i had to actually travel right. home to work on the, the computer <laughs> that's you know weighs 300 pounds sitting on my desk with a you know so yeah yeah was, how, did, how did you get in there like did you have to apply or you just show up i i didn't know i never i was you know right fresh out of college and yeah. i didn't i never covered a trial before i'd done some in journalism school you know just for writing a paper for class but i sure. just showed up outside the courtroom like two hours early hoping to get a seat and managed to, I mean, it wasn't a turnaway crowd. It was full, but I don't think they turned people away. And so, yeah, you just, you, I mean, any public, anybody can go to a court. Yeah, there were, there, were, there were a lot of fans there every day. Yeah, yeah, and wrestlers. And yeah, a few wrestlers and everything. Yeah, so um, I was talking to Wade, I think, pretty much every night. And then after a couple of days, it was kind of like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, okay, I got to go. It was very Dave Meltzer-like. It was, oh God, okay, 
No, I, I need to be there. I gotta, I gotta call my, I gotta call my travel agent. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then you were there too, Dave, in the courtroom. I was. I missed the first couple of days, but I was there for yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah. So tell us kind of some of the stories that happened in the courtroom because you mentioned there was a lot of testifying. There was wrestlers there, and as we know, I mean, God knows we've seen this at funerals, unfortunately, where it just turns into a whole freaking circus. Because whenever the boys are involved, they always got to make it about themselves. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty. Of examples of that happening in this courtroom as well it didn't seem like a circus it felt like a serious trial but serious trials story, sometimes are circus like with to me a circus when you attach to pro wrestling you imagine like a bunch of people showing up in costumes and or their <laughs> ring gear and having fake matches uh, like fans having like you know backyard wrestling it wasn't like it was just a trial like you wouldn't know it was a wrestling trial other than Alpha. <laughs> yes yes well tell that story okay so uh, so Alpha. Who's like really the only he he would be in the back he was like in the back row, and he was like mouthing not guilty like to the jury <laughs> like that. Now so so that came that out and, and and yeah not guilty yeah yeah that's that so so that was kind of circus like because I don't think that you like expect you know three hundred pound Alpha in a trial like you know whispering stuff to the jury. <laughs> Adam Hopkins, who's worked for WWE as in the PR department, uh, media relations for decades, he was a fan who attended the trial because he, he lived in Long Island. So oh, wow. he was there um, in the local media. You know, I mean, they were talking to Dave and me constantly about what does this mean? What does that mean? We were kind of the filter for how, and, and to create context and filter through what seemed credible and what didn't. And a lot of our quotes showed up in the newspapers and TV reports during that three-week period, too, because of that. It, but, it, I mean, it, it felt like a serious trial. I mean, the judge was a character, you know, but, but you know, as we've seen with recent trials in, in on sure. television, you know, judges, uh, you know, can sometimes be eccentric. But it was, it was, it felt like what I'd seen on television, a drop, you know. Who testified for Vince and who testified against him? Well, nobody testified specifically for Vince in the sense that they, they didn't, didn't present the defense. Oh, yeah, they didn't present a defense. But you know, like they had Doug Sages, who was the CFO at the time. Um, Hogan ended up being, you know, very good. He was he was supposed to be the key witness against Vince. He got um, immunity. He, he got immunity because they had found something on Hogan. And the thing is, is and I'm sure that there were other people who they found stuff on who you know. Um, and the idea was is that. Um, you know, we won't press to anything on you because they wanted Vince. They didn't want Hogan. If they wanted Hogan, they'd actually have, would have gotten Hogan on, on stuff that he had done, perhaps, um, you know, because that's why he was granted immunity. So he came in there and the Hogan thing was so interesting because uh, McDivitt could not cross-examine Hogan because McDivitt had represented Hogan um, and got him. Oh. McDivitt got Hogan out of the Zahorian trial. He was supposed to testify at the Zahorian trial. Um, and then um, McDivitt got, the, got him out, which was another thing that caused a lot of outrage. But he wasn't Dave, going to be able to. I meant to ask yeah. you this, and this is interesting. Why did Hope? How was your perception of why Hogan got out of testifying different than the way it was covered in the Vice documentary? I thought it was essentially what it was. So they they originally had, I think it was five wrestlers, and it was um, Blair Piper, Martell, and I think there was one other guy and Hogan. And then um, McDivitt's basic thing was he went to the judge and said, "Look, all these guys are going to testify to the same thing, and you don't need Hogan." The case is going to be exactly the same. And, and I think everyone knew Zahorian was getting convicted. The Zahorian case was an open and shut case. You know, I mean, they had the tape of the guy and, you know, all the evidence and, and all the wrestlers were going to testify. So he argued you don't need Hogan and that there was a medical issue. And, and, and McDivitt actually on the show, which really surprised me, you know, kind of intimated what it was. Hogan was, you know, Zahorian was a urologist, okay? And he was, you know, he did have a doctor-patient relationship with Hogan outside of being just a drug dealer to Hogan. And he was looking to have kids at the time. So he went to Sahorian, you know, I mean, he'd been taking steroids for whatever right. it was, 11, 12 straight years. And so, you know, it's sometimes it can be difficult to have kids on that. And I think that McDivitt's argument was, is like, look, he's, he's a big public figure. And if it comes out in this case that this giant macho Hulk Hogan can't have kids because he's been doing steroids for 12 years, it could kill his career. And it, perhaps at that time, it could have killed his career. It certainly would have killed his endorsement career at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was like, we don't, you don't need to kill this guy's career because the case is going to end the same way. And he convinced the judge and the judge says, okay, Hogan doesn't have to testify. And they dropped the count. And I remember, you know, Mushnick was on the, the show, the dark side show. And he was just like, 
because the truth is going to like end his career. He got off. You know, it's like he was so incredulous of that. And he got special treatment because he was the biggest star. So he had the most to lose. But these other wrestlers had, quote, less to lose. So they had to testify. And it just it felt very unfair. It felt, felt like the celebrity was getting special treatment at the time. I thought it was interesting. You said, Dave, that Jerry McDevitt said, oh, yeah, there was, you know, medic- a, pers- a very personal medical issue Hogan was dealing with. And I don't remember that coming out at the time as the reason. No, no, it, it, was, it, it, it was a medical issue that could – what came out in the trial when he got it, it was a medical, uh, a medical condition that could have caused embarrassment. But the specifics the of specifics. it, you know, yeah. did not come out. But we all pre- figured, okay, uh, Brooke was conceived right around this time or Nick. I forget which one. But it was like the time frame and the the fact of what Zahorian's normal thing was. I mean, I nobody had ever told me, but I knew it. But I didn't – no one had ever said it specifically until um, McDivitt said it on the show, like whatever it was, you know, almost three decades later. But they gave Hogan immunity and he testified in the trial, the McMahon trial. And the idea was he was going, he was this star witness. His, what he said would carry the most weight because he's the one who the jury go, go from sleepy to, whoa, Hulk Hogan's in our presence. We're going to pay attention to him. And the media. And the media. This was the day it was going to get the most coverage. And Sean O'Shea uh, was like, the whole trial was just, Chill. Matter of fact, all business. And when Hogan testified, his body language changed. He was clearly surprised by what Hogan said. It damaged his case. Hogan was expected to be the witness who would steal the case for the prosecution. And instead, Hogan just shocked everyone. And when I interviewed Hogan, what was it, 2002, about this, and he just asked me, he goes, Did I, am I the reason Vince McMahon didn't go to prison? And his testimony had to do with charges that were dropped. So probably not. But the fact is, is the, pr- the prosecution in the end appealed to the jury. There's this big memo. You have enough to send a message to corporate America. You can't push steroids, whether you say it directly or not. It's still a conspiracy. We argue that. We've explained why this case. And in the back of the jury's mind, there's, you know, if Hogan had said, whether it applied to the charges that were dropped or not, if, if Hogan had come out against Vince McMahon, that could have swayed a couple members of the jury to hold out. It might have changed things. So Hogan talk, wanted credit for having saved Vince McMahon from going to prison is kind of what it comes down to. And that's, I think, what his rationalization was. Maybe he didn't even know the nuance of legalities, too. So the, the, the key thing is with, with McDivitt is that he could not cross-examine Hogan because of their prior relationship. So Laura Bavetti examined Hogan, and she came in the courtroom, and she had this giant, what would you call it, Wade, like this it was it was this big thing she brought in, which had like all of these books, and it said Hogan X exam. And it was just like, Oh my God, like she had like the stuff. She was going to kill this guy, absolutely kill this guy on God knows what. I mean, it was books full of evidence or notes on Hulk Hogan. And then as soon as Hulk Hogan just like flipped in the (laughs) sense of, you know, so so they did not, they were ready for Hogan to be a big witness against them and to kill Hulk Hogan in cross-examination on, you know, everything they knew on Hogan that he'd ever probably done bad since he was in sixth grade that they had in these, in these files. And they didn't have to go to them because Hogan was beneficial to them. But they were they did not know ahead of time what Hulk Hogan would do. And they were absolutely ready to just tear him up. Like, I, I mean, I still can there's like these big these big booklets with the Hogan X examination on it. The pages might have been blank, but it was intimidating. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it looks scary as hell. How integral was Hogan's appearance on Arsenio Hall at that point in time as far as how bad he looked with everything? I, I think that, that if that didn't happen, um, perhaps the media, because this came right after the Zahorian trial. So this is in 91. There's two separate trials. There's Zahorian and then there's the Vince trial. Actually, it's, um, yeah, it was early 91. We, yeah, so the Zahorian trial. So so it's right, a couple of weeks after the Zahorian trial, Hogan goes on. So I think that if Hogan would have gone on there, I don't know what he could have said. I mean... Um, because if he'd said, yes, I use steroids for ever since I was 230 pounds or whatever, um, you know, in that position at that point in time, it would have looked really bad. Um, so, I mean, he, I think he was scared to death on because whatever he would say. So he said the, the thing he said, which was, I used steroids three times in my life to rehab a torn bicep, which nobody bought. And, um, nobody, yeah, nobody <laughs> bought. And, and I think that that is where, the second run of media stuff. Cause, cause I do remember when I was on Donahue with Vince, I did say to him once and I go, you know, if Hogan would have told the truth on Arsenio, none of us ever would have been here. And cause at that moment, that's what I thought. And I think it's probably true. So I think if that doesn't happen, they still, 
it's it's one of those things you don't know because would Mushnick have still written even if Hogan would have told the truth? Yes, he would have. And I think it was Mushnick's writing that led the government. And a lot of the stuff was the the underage ring boy stuff, which actually, you know, was one of the things that got investigated but never charged. And that was, you know, different from the steroid stuff. So I do think that it would have ended up somewhere either, even without that. But from a media standpoint, that hurt Vince a lot. Yes. And yeah, the I mean, the 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 just uh, reaction when Hogan said that on Arsenio across every I mean, the oh, whole yeah. wrestling industry was just like, he, he can't be serious. Like that was, you know, you have to pick the the scope of your lie and have it within the realm of believability. And Hogan was so outside of it that it, it just really hurt his credibility. And then it made people lose faith that right. Hogan was like this good guy who just, you know, like when you would lie that it, it showed a contempt for his fan base that he would say something so ridiculous. But I mean, if you look at it also, you know, and this is a key thing, you know, because of, of what happened, what our, the Arsenio Hall thing did, and, and I think Vince was hoping it would go away and it didn't. Um, if you remember in 82 at WrestleMania, Vince kept Hogan until 82 WrestleMania. 92. And then the idea was he would go to WrestleMania and he would retire, which he didn't do. But Vince had actually told me, he was like, WrestleMania is going to be his last date. And then he's gone. Um, I remember he told me that before WrestleMania. I go, what? What? Hogan's mm-hmm. gone? Because the whole company's built on Hogan. And the fear was, for me, when he told me that, was, I don't know, like, your business is going to drop like crazy without Hulk Hogan because it was all built on Hulk Hogan. He was the biggest star they had. And um, I'm trying to remember, at that point, Warrior was already gone as well um, because he had been fired in, in August. So um, it was like, you know, wh- wh- what are you going to do? And and then it was kind of like, I don't know if he'll ever be back, which of course he knew he would be back. I think the idea was go away for nine months, come back. Everyone's so glad to see you back. They'll forget about the steroid thing, which is what happened to a degree. But even when Hogan came back the second time, um, his popularity was nowhere close to what it was before. And he couldn't bring, you know, business went went south. The minute Hogan left, business went south. And he only brought it up slightly. And then him and Vince had the falling out over the Bret Hart thing, you know, where Vince wanted him to drop the title to Bret Hart and and he didn't feel it. So then he was gone. And then, you know, they had bad years really until, you know, the emergence of the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels and the emergence of Stone Cold and DX and everything like that, where, you know, they had the big comeback, but they had several really bad years. And if Hogan never goes on Arsenio Hall and Hogan's popularity stays, Hogan's always going to be around as the Bruno, even if they made somebody else champion, but he'd be there full time. And if Hogan was there with no taint, I mean, he'd have still drawn bigger than anybody else. And they would not have had that decline in business for years. Why would they have put him in that position to do Arsenio in the first place where he could get asked that question? Well, he went on to, to, to do the thing. I think Vince just felt there was so much media oh, that they gotcha. both, Vince and Hogan, both on the same day, did media. Hogan went on Arsenio Hall and Vince did a press conference. And Vince did a, you know, Vince was goes like, yes, I used Decadurablin from Dr. Zahorian. I used it for like Vince's thing was I used it for a short period of time. Okay. So he, he admitted use. I was doing it for bodybuilding and I stopped doing it. That's what he said. I stopped doing it. I didn't, I've lifted weights my whole life. I started doing it. I didn't feel natural. So I stopped. So that was Vince's um, thing. And I think he probably wanted Hogan to say, yeah, we didn't know what, you know, we didn't know the side effects and I was young and all this, but that's what Arnold said around the same time. That was right. That, that was the go, the go-to thing was we didn't know. We didn't know. So that, I think that, that's what he wanted. We Hogan, didn't know and now we know. Yeah. Well, yeah. And Hogan just went in the full denial thing and you know, that didn't work. And Vince did tell me like, um, you know, which was another thing on the Donnie show because about, about a week later, and, and he just goes, I was devastated. You know, I, I want, I told him to tell the truth. And I never knew if Vince was like working me really until the trial, because during the trial, I think it came out in the Hogan testimony where they asked about that. And Hogan said, yeah, it was my decision. You know, Hogan said, I lied on Arsenio Hall. You know, they go like, did we said on Arsenio Hall was true. No, I lied. And then it was like, did Vince tell you to lie? And that was one of the things and he just goes, no, Vince told me to tell the truth. And because it was under oath, I thought, okay, Vince was probably telling me the truth when he, because he told me that he goes, I told Hogan, I told Hogan to tell the truth. And I was devastated when he didn't tell the truth. And he was, and obviously with, with hindsight, he was devastated. And, and Hogan told me when I interviewed him that I said, what's the biggest mistake you've made? Like just a very broad general topic. He goes, oh, like what I said on Arsenio, like I yeah. should not have said what I said the way I said it. He 
completely re- he I think he sincerely regrets that. I think he knows the the chain reaction that resulted from that, and he he owns that. I mean, I, I do. I mean, there's a lot of things Hogan says for PR reasons. I, I believe there's very he's very sincere. He owned that that was a big mistake that blew up and, and caused a lot of problems. And I mean, again, like what we was from earlier, it's like I don't think unless you were around between '84 and '92 and followed wrestling closely to understand the enormity of Hogan. I mean, even as big as Austin was, and Austin actually drew more money than Hogan. They could, you know, Austin was gone for a year with a neck injury and business yeah. stayed huge. Hogan carried the company. I mean, more than John Cena could even, you could even imagine. It's not even close. John Cena was never close. Austin was never close as far as just being so integral between giant success and failure. That was Hogan. If you go to a WWE event, someone says, hey, WWE's in town, let's go. And then you you think, oh, we're going to buy tickets, but who's on the show? And you ask the question, why are you already committed to buying tickets? Back then it was WWF's in town. Yeah, it's Hogan on the show. And that determined whether you yep. won or not. Right, because that was the difference between 4,000 people and 10,000 people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, as, as a fan, especially during Hogan's peak and being 16, 17 years old, he was a cultural phenomenon th- for that age group the way that, I don't know, Harry Styles or One Direction would be. Like, everybody in that time frame knew who he was. And I vividly remember sitting in the Winnipeg Arena, because you know this, they would announce the next card at intermission uh. so that you would then go to the box office and buy tickets during intermission. And any time matter who it was and it was always howard that would build up to it. we've got tito versus you know versus morocco you'd be like oh that's cool and then we got the british bulldogs versus hammer and valentine right on and <laughs> one man gang versus hulk hogan and kids yeah. would be running kids would be running yeah. to the box office <laughs> so yeah you're right you, you you will never get that type of phenomenon in wrestling in the modern age because it's just a different time frame now so it really was a big deal for all this to be happening and going down Actually, first of all, just for people that haven't heard it, please tell me the great uh, quote uh, from from Nails, from Kevin Walkholst when he was on the stand answering the question about Vince. So Laura Bavetti's cross-examining him, and I forgot the word that she used, even though I used it on the show. So she goes Wade, like, Wade's got it. What was the word? Uh, uh, personal animosity. Yeah. Some, okay. So let's say, so she says, do you have a personal animosity against Vince? Goes, I pulled it up on my back issue here on the website. Yeah. So McDevitt asked Walkholst to describe his outfit. Did it reveal your musculature? Yes, it did, Walkholst said. Uh, but he didn't, and, and, and of course, no, it didn't. Um, Laura Brevetti asked two questions of Walkouts. Isn't it a fact you have personal animosity against Vince McMahon? Walkouts said, no. Uh, Brevetti said, do you hate Vince McMahon? Walkouts said, yes. The conclusion was Kevin Walkouts did not know what the word animosity meant. Well, Laura said that. She goes, she goes, obviously, he doesn't even know what the word animosity yes. means. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Do you hate Vince yes, McMahon? Yeah. 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 So Vince, so so let's get to the final. I mean, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but you guys were you were in the in the in the courtroom when the verdict is is given, and so McDevitt is nervous. Uh, Vince is obviously nervous as well. So kind of tell us the moment where they said the actual verdict. I was uh, stayed through closing arguments. I didn't know how long the jury was going to be out, so I flew back oh, gotcha. and wrote the issue. I was live on the phone, like with people, as soon as the verdict was read and. Um, I think John Arezzi was there and he described everything to me. Right. Um, and then I just wrote, you know, wrote the details of their verdict being read. So I got to see Vince McMahon during the trial when the jury wasn't present, hold his wrists up. Like, why don't you just cuff me right now, judge? Put me away. When the judge, the judge ruled something against Vince. Yep. And so, yeah, he just holds his arm and he's got the neck brace on too. And he's got his arms up. Like, just, right. just take me to prison type of a reaction. Yeah. That was the only time Vince was the Vince that we know, you know, where he's just like, you know, because the rest of the time, he's just sitting there. You know, he's basically just sitting there and pretty stoic for most of the trial. And 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 never, never, Vince was never on the stand, you know, because, you know, he didn't have to testify against himself. So so that was an interesting thing because I don't think anyone expected Vince not to be on the stand when that trial started. I mean, that, 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 that was going to be the big part of the trial was Vince. But when, when, uh, when Vince was found not guilty, he looked toward the sky, smiled and shook both fists in front of his chest, signaling victory. Then he got up and hugged Linda and his attorneys. Uh, Shane joined in the celebration, and he just acted like a weight was lifted off his shoulders. That was how it was described to me. But like, if you if you watch any I don't know TV sitcom, like freaking I don't know Three's Company, and Jack Tripper has to go to court, he puts the damn neck brace on, or whether it's like <laughs> a, you know any type of movie that you see, Vince shows up and you see it on bunch. Dark Side of the Rain. Yep. Anything he shows up with a neck brace, I'm like that is the it's the worst like it's so obvious like i've got a neck brace like so why was he in a neck brace he had neck surgery from from all the uh behind the neck presses that he did when he was younger and messed up right. his neck. so he needed the surgery and i mean the tv 
Yeah. So the, the key was, I mean, he, he, he could have had it done at any time, right? but it was like, so it's not like he didn't need it. And it's not like the surgery was fake. I mean, it was real, but he chose the time right before the trial to get it done. And I mean, and his excuse was, well, I'm going to be, I, it's the only time I'm going to be off TV. Cause he never wanted to be on TV as an announcer with a neck brace. So that was his rationale was like, I'm going to be off TV. So now I'll have the surgery. But you know, I mean, obviously the fact that there was the trial there, it, both played a part in it. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, yeah. if, if the neck brace was going to make Vince look less sympathetic, he would not have had surgery. I mean, he of knew, course. you know, the visual. But, well, I mean, walking him, walking to that courtroom with that neck brace on, I'll never forget. I just, I mean, everybody just looked at each other like, is he serious? George Costanza. George Costanza, yeah. That was the reaction, exactly. I mean, people yeah. just looking at it going like, Oh my God. He's, I mean, I just remember, I think me and you, um, he, he walks in there and it's just this, this reaction of, Oh my God, he's really doing this, you know? <laughs> yeah. But McDevitt, I never heard the story that Vince took off the neck brace, like at the party afterwards. And yeah, right after this, <laughs> not guilty. Done with this thing. It was the most funny I've ever seen Jerry McDevitt be, you know? And he was just like, <laughs> no, it's, and he like had to correct himself. He wanted to make sure the audience or the, you know, the, the documentary crew knew he really needed the neck brace. I'm not saying it was fake, but it was sort of funny to play into the perception that it was fake. And Vince <laughs> took it off at the party when they were drinking and <laughs> thought, we no need for this prop anymore. As we start to wind down, talk about how the uh, trial did affect business because there was a whole change in the attitude of the WWE after that. And it did affect them, didn't it? Well, it, it is the change really started after the Zahorian trial. And then after Hogan um, left and also when they start steroid testing and then you have all these, road warriors and people like this, you know, Sid Vicious, you know, that they were built on are all gone because did they not want to be drug tested? I mean, there's a million reasons, but not wanting to be drug tested was played a part in a lot of these guys too. And, and they were doing so. So at that point you have to, you know, I guess that's where the, you know, without this, does the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels era and the era that, you know, that allowed guys like you to be big stars that you didn't have to be so muscular. Does that even happen or do they just keep going? My, my thought is that they keep going with six foot five muscular guys forever. Maybe, you know, 10 years later, who knows? I mean, fans change and things like that. But but it would have gone for much more, much more time. And then the Brett era comes in and the Shawn Michaels era. And that changes also the mentality of like this whole generation of wrestlers that grew up. You know, like you grow up and you look in the mirror and go like, I could never look like Ultimate Warrior. I just couldn't. Right. I could never look like Hulk Hogan. I sure as hell couldn't look like the Road Warriors or Warlord or or you know or even Macho Man or Paul Orndorff, right? You couldn't. I can't look like or these guys. Be Brian Blair. I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Even yeah, yeah. the documentary. Even even the even the small. This is the funny thing. And Chris, you know, because you were the small guy, and now you're like a big guy. You know, I mean, the whole world yeah. has changed completely. So yeah. so a lot of these guys that are now in wrestling that are doing really well will look at oh, you know, Sean's not that big. And Mick Foley was another one who I think that ushered in a whole bunch of guys. I can look like Mick Foley and I probably can fall off of things, not realizing that there's more to life than, and wrestling than that, but it ushered yeah, in. Mick's also six foot three too. You know, he's a big guy. Yeah. yeah. But, 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 his, you know, Nick Mick's thing, I think that really made him was his promos more than his, and, and his, of course, and of his course. but, but I mean, but you, you opened up this whole world of people who would have gone, I could never be in wrestling, who are now going like, ah, I think I can be in. And some of these guys ended up being giant, giant stars. And it's like a whole, you know, it, it changed the whole, but it, it absolutely changed the entire world and the face of wrestling. And wrestling changed and became more athletic. And um, the match became far more important um, than just the walk-in and the pose and things like that. Yeah, and and, and business went down for a while. You know, for several years until the, the fans kind of, you know, didn't expect that from their wrestlers anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, it didn't kill the business because, you know, the business has had some great high points since then. But it absolutely that changed the business gigantic. Yes. The fan base was built on larger than life stars. And when that changed, there was an adjustment on who the fan base was. But I mean, I, I saw the rise of Hulkamania in the AWA. I saw like it was very organic. Me it too, was yeah. The Hulkamania was not created by Vince McMahon. It wasn't created by Vern Gagne. It was just something that sort of happened because Hulk was Hulk. Yeah. And, but, so, you know, the wrestling, wrestling fans in different territories had different styles of wrestling were raised on different styles. But when I saw the British Bulldogs and Bret Hart in the ring for the first time, that changed my perception of what pro wrestling could be. 
And I think getting rid of or downplaying the mus the musculature and the work rate that came along with that, which was not particularly exciting. Um, I think ultimately it changed the business. Was it for the better in the short run? No, but it made wrestling a much more diverse and I think appealing product overall than what the WWF was promoting in that 84 to 92 range otherwise. Because without Hogan, that lumbering muscular style isn't all that exciting. You need a special person like Hogan to make that work. But one of the things that they did have is that they did have those underneath guys to give you a good show underneath. And then Hogan did Hogan did the Hogan routine, okay? But, um, but yeah, as far as up and down the entire card and, and going to a show, there, there's, there's so much more to a show now than there was then. And, you know, then it was like... You, you went to the show to see these larger-than-life guys you saw on TV in the flesh, these six-foot-three, 270-pound guys with, with, with abs. And, you know, now you go to see you go to see the match. You go to see the, the show, the whole thing. But then it was very much you're going to see these, these larger-than-life TV guys. But that's the thing. But, but, but basically, what it all, as we can almost end it off on this, I'll ask you one more question. It still boils down to no matter what the package is, and you mentioned Hogan and being as big as he was and all the undercard guys building up, it was still Hogan with the unbelievable charisma and the unbelievable connection to the audience. Yes. And part of that connection was his size. But the, for every Hogan, there was just as many warlords and barbarians and warlord. Hercules Hernandez and the guys that were just <laughs> as big but had no connection. Well, look at, look at, but look at, look at, Perfect example is a guy who who you guys might not even remember him. Okay, do you remember Mason Ryan when he came in? Yeah, of yeah. course. Okay, so you do remember. Yeah. Him. Okay, well, yeah, because you'd have been there. Okay, so so I remember when Mason Ryan came in and Batista, who was gigantic, just goes, "Oh my God, look at this guy!" And right, and, right, and, right. and and if he'd come along in the Hogan era, he is as boring as he was. Just because of that, he would have been a big main eventer, and he would have drawn. You know, he was just a. a he would have drawn big money, or Rob Terry is another one that would have drawn Rob Terry. Yeah, yeah, he would have drawn big, big money as an opponent for Hogan. But when they came along, because they didn't connect with the audience and the audience had changed, you know, most fans, when I mention those two names, either barely or don't even know who they are, or just kind of, remember, oh, yeah, yeah, Rob Perry, the guy, I mean, Rob Terry, the guy with the big arms. And most people don't even remember that. You know, it's just, you're, you're right, you're right, though. It was, it was, um, there were tons of people with muscles, and you know, poor Warlord is always the first example people give because he was so big, but he just didn't have that charisma. Um, <laughs> but Lex Luger, you know, was kind of in the middle. Um, Perfect, he yeah. was somebody who had charisma, he, he had a good look, but Vince tried and it just didn't connect, you know, part of partially because the next big star is never a, a, a copy of the previous, previous big star, it's always somebody exactly. completely different, right? right. Was very different. And John Cena, personality-wise, very different than Austin, on and on. So you needed to have that extra piece that Hogan had. It was, and in wrestling, it was gonna, it was gonna be hard for wrestling to find a Hulk Hogan for every generation. So wrestling needed to be built on other things, whether it was whatever with the action or the you know the charisma or the personalities. It had to be other things. It was, and and in the sixties and seventies, every territory had a different style because of the talent it had and the proclivity and and preferences of the promoter running it. It was never going to be just one thing. You weren't just going to replace Hogan with somebody else because to Hogan's credit, he had an X factor that, yeah. I mean, nobody the has connection. that chance, no matter what we say about John Cena right. or whoever. No. Yeah. yeah. L last question for you guys. Let's play fantasy uh, what if, which is always you know interesting to do. Let's say Vince does get convicted and he has to go to jail for, I don't know, let's say two years. What, would, what, what do you think would have happened with the WWE? And I'm sure he still would have been able to make some decisions from behind bars or whatever. But do you think the company would have stayed okay until Vince got out? Would it have crumbled? What, what, what do you think would have happened? I think it would have lost TV stations. And I think it would have crumbled might be too strong a word. Because it, even then, you know, you remember this is 94. And Vince didn't really turn it around until, you know, the, the seeds of the turnaround were in 97. But the turnaround itself was probably 98. So it's years later. This, I think... Um, lengthens that time frame because I think it goes down much further for a couple of years and they have to rebuild the syndication. Cable has to get bigger. Who knows? I mean, here's one of the things. Had this happened because they were in 97, they were on the verge of being canceled by USA Network when, um, right. you know, so, so if that happens, they're off TV and it's like in that era with no TV, you're done. So to say that would they have been completely done? Would they have, but, but they would have been hurt really bad. And keep, and add WSW to the equation and Ted Turner. Hogan right. during the trial was yelling outside the courtroom by my pay-per-view, WSW pay-per-view match. Yeah. At this, for this coming weekend. <laughs> right. He was working for the competition while he testified and got Vince McMahon. Wow. Gotcha. Uh, gotcha. So 
you can't ask that question outside of the context of there's a bunch of money that Turner's investing. They would see this vulnerability. They already have Hulk Hogan and they've got Sting and they've got the money yeah. and they've got the clearance and they got the core fan base in the Southeast that's expanded nationally. We see what they did with Nitro. Eric Bischoff was a visionary. So what happened to WWF is one question. What happened to the wrestling business is another. It might have cleared. I don't know if a lack of competition, Dave, would have cleared the way for WCW to succeed or if it was a competition that caused Bischoff to to push as hard as he did in that Monday Night War era. And so, I mean, it is it's a big I don't know. But WCW certainly would have had more of the field to themselves to do things right and succeed. Yes. Yes. WCW, you know, it's like it's like they would have dominated far greater than they did when they dominated. Now, the question is, would they have still self-destructed at the end? And it's like, was the self-destruction because of the pressure of Vince coming back? And I think a lot of it was, because I just saw in that whole company, and Chris, you were there at the time, you know, when you went from the top, top, and all of a sudden, Vince is gaining, and you can't stop Vince because Austin and Rock are just on fire. And no matter what, you can't keep going back to Hogan. They had they had mortgaged the next generation in favor of Hogan and Nash and these guys. So um, do they do this without that pressure? And if there's nobody else, if there's no, if there's no Austin, there's no Rock. Does Hogan just be by being Hogan have you know three more years of shelf life as the cool guy on top? Man, you don't know, but to say. it could have been. It, it easily could have been that WCW would have won the war and WWF would have gone out of business. But what what WCW put cruiserweights on television to? I mean, it's such an underrated what you were doing. Yeah, there's Jericho so many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would they would they would they have done that if it wasn't if they weren't fighting WWE and and that, and That's and giving point. stuff that? Yeah, you don't know. You don't know. Yeah, I mean, Bischoff counter-programmed WWE. A lot of what you did, Chris, and Eddie Guerrero and Ultimo Dre, all that stuff was in, and Rey Mysterio was counter-programming the WWE. Yeah, you're doing, doing something WWF couldn't match. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so if you don't have that that contrast that Eric Bischoff would brag about on commentary, you know, this is where the big boys play was the motto, but it's also where the undercard is really exciting and way the stars better. of tomorrow yeah. are wrestling is way better. So. You know, it is. There's too many. It's the butterfly. Yeah, there's, 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 too, yeah there's too many questions about. But it would be what, what, I, what I think we could say, though, is it would have been whatever it was. It would have been markedly different from how it turned out. It changed everything in in the long run, especially with Jarrett taking over. We really missed out on that Dundee Jarrett <laughs> main event. <laughs> yeah. Guys, thank you so much. This has been very, very cool. It's always great talking with you, Dave. And uh, Wade will have to do this again, but more history of this business because there's always so many uh, crazy stories to tell yeah that'd be yeah awesome. that'd be fun. great thank you guys